0: hello to all my fellow 101 history podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys. Um, hard to believe that um, a week ago this time my wife and I were still uh, vacationing. Uh, but what I do find hard to believe that it was uh, a week ago this time we were in um, a place called uh, Putin Bay, Ohio. and I'm sure many of you are wondering where in the world is Putin Bay? Well, I could tell you that it's located on an on one of the Lake Erie islands known as uh, South Bass Island. Uh, nearby is uh, Middle Bass Island and to the north is uh, North Bass Island, but the most populated uh, of those three islands is uh, South Bass Island where uh, Putin Bay is. And the reason why they call it Putin Bay is uh one of the um legends or tales has it that uh, when sailors um came to uh South Bass Island um to uh say stop off uh for the evening after a, um how do i say it after a couple of days journey um along uh say Lake Erie for example uh they were looking for a place to rest which they got at um South Bass Island but um when the waters got um rough and choppy um or I should say uh Lake Erie's waters got rough and choppy uh the sailors decided to stay um, to stay in place or to stay to stay in put. Uh so basically uh given where they were it was along the bay uh being that of water, they decided to stay uh put in bay or put in place, so if you want to if you want to call it a different way, but put in bay was their way of, of uh referring to staying in place until the waters were much calmer and smoother uh, to continue on onward with their journey. For those of you who haven't been to uh Putin bay in uh, South Bass Island, uh, it is very well worth the visit. It's a great... Um, you could even probably spend a whole week there, um, or part of a week, or just better yet, a day. And uh, to get there, uh, you would uh, drive to... Um, I want to say you drive to a Katapa Island, uh, not just on the outskirts of Port Clinton, and uh, you can take a boat ride over, and um, and my wife and I uh, drove around via golf cart. Very well worth the experience. So uh, if you're looking for something that's um, that on one hand is uh, on the touristy side, but yet you can uh, journey around. Um, Via bike and golf cart, to go to Putin Bay. It's uh, very well worth um, very well worth the while. Well, you know, uh, from what I've seen so far, um, I've seen uh, that there are a good many of you out there whom are very um, intrigued with this uh, new series uh, that we're doing uh, called "Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise: Fort Meigs in the War of 1812" by Larry uh, by Larry Nelson. Well um if i recall uh f- when i finished the uh, prologue uh back on uh sunday it was that we were going to be learning about um the early stages of this war and we're going to learn um about the uh, lead commander and uh, on the american side as well as the uh, lead uh, commander on the british and um in the early uh, onset of this war We're going to learn how one side prevailed and learn how the other didn't prevail based upon uh, miscalculations. Um, Not just miscalculations, but uh, also, to some degree, uh, cowardice. I know that sounds harsh to say, but it did happen, and it does need to be um, discussed. We will also learn um, the... um, how the Americans uh, journeyed under their commander uh, northward from uh, the United States into uh, Canada via the Northwest Territory into Canada. So that's just uh, some of the things that we will be uh, discussing. But um, I've probably mentioned to you all before uh, when uh, doing uh, podcast um, podcast episodes, regardless of topic, I'm sure some of you are thinking to yourselves now, how many pages has Kirk uh, compiled into uh, this particular episode? Well, for the most part, it usually is between five and five and a half pages. This one, for this episode, is going to be six. Something tells me I could have some other ones down the road that are six pages. What I do know is that uh, six is the max. Some people would say, man, you're really pushing it, Kirk, for six pages. Yes, I could be. But I have proven from time to time, when doing uh, six pages, a six-page uh, podcast segment, that I've been able to get it all done within a sixty-minute, uh, within a sixty-minute, one-hour time frame. So, I believe it's fair to say that we better get this show on the road and um, let's get the uh, ball rolling and be prepared for our first lead-off question to this. Uh, podcast segment episode to uh, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, Fort Meigs, in the War of 1812. Which former American Revolutionary War officer got appointed as the governor of the Michigan Territory on March 22nd, 1805? I don't expect many of you all to know this one, Usually, when we think of American Revolutionary War officers, it's probably fair to say, you know, we think of those officers who served under General uh, George Washington, such as Alexander Hamilton, Nathaniel Green, um, trying to think who else, um, Francis Marion, um, just to name a, a few, uh, Benjamin Lincoln's another one, um, and of course, that infamous Benedict Arnold, who um, ultimately became a traitor, but, uh, the answer to this uh, question being which former American Revolutionary War officer got appointed as the governor of the Michigan Territory on March 22nd, 1805, the, na- the answer is uh, Brigadier General William Hull, and I'm sure that was probably not one that most of you would have thought of. I, I don't believe that many people probably know who William Hull is, and on one hand maybe that's okay, uh, just given that it's probably not the first person that would come to many people's minds. But I'll give you a little history about him. William Hull was born on June twenty fourth, 1753, in Derby, Connecticut. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, where in the world is Derby, Connecticut? Well, Derby, I looked it up, and uh, Derby is located outside of New Haven. And what's unique about New Haven, folks? Well, the thing that's very unique about New Haven, Connecticut, is that there is a... Um, prestigious university located in that uh, town or city known as Yale University. But, of course, in William Hole's day, it would have been probably referred to as Yale College. So, anyways, uh, William Hull, nonetheless, um, went on to attend uh, Yale College, and he graduated there in 1772, two years after the infamous Boston Massacre. And to think, when he was born in 1753, We were just pretty much on the eve of that infamous Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. Uh, William Hull went on to become a lawyer, and by 1775 he saw his uh, call of duty, his call of duty being that of serving his country. So not long after shots were fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, William Hull became very actively engaged in the Revolutionary War. He fought in a handful of um, battles, uh, the ones that come to my mind. um, I want to say that he probably fought in at least eight or nine battles, uh, but the battles that he um, was actively involved in were um, Trenton, Princeton, Saratoga, uh, Fort Stanwix outside of present-day Syracuse, uh, Monmouth in uh, New Jersey, I I was uh, blown away by this uh, about William Hole, but it turns out that he was a very, very uh dear friend to uh Nathan Hale. Uh for those of you who were with me when we talked about uh the tragedy of Benedict Arnold uh that was written by Joyce Lee Malcolm, we uh we learned towards the very end of that series about how uh Nathan Hale uh tragically lost his life. He um was the only one um whom answered the call of duty. Per uh, General Washington's request in New York, to go behind enemy lines and engage in a spy mission uh, within uh, New York City. Well, Nathan Hale, um, as courageous as a as as courageous as he was, as, given that you know he died very young. Uh, the mistake that he made um, was a well. For one, he did not. Um, he didn't uh, thoroughly disguise himself well, and what I mean by that is that when um, British agents asked him for you know some form of identification, he um, the identification that he gave him included uh, Yale College, and given that he um, attended Yale College, that was seen as a red flag to the British. In other words, this guy really isn't a tr- to us he's not really a true spy he's um he well he is a spy but he has uh sold himself he sold him he basically has um he's uh, totally um revealed his true identity and that not only is he a spy but he is a spy within the uh continental army so sadly long story short what made his event what made that uh matter all the more tragic was that Nathan Hale was not given the right to a fair and speedy trial. In other words, he was not allowed to um, to uh, defend his actions. He was not even allowed to have a lawyer represent him. Basically, he um, he was automatically found guilty before even being tried by um, a group of uh, peers, not just so much a group of peers, but really he, he didn't even have the chance to... Um, have any kind of formal uh charges be brought against him basically shortly after he was um shortly after he was caught by the british he was um executed by um hanging um nonetheless a very very um tragic um incident that occurred in uh, early september of 1776 right at a time when the uh, Continental Army was on the run. Um, Desertions were starting to happen. Uh, It was starting to become a time where, as to whether or not George Washington wasn't even 100% sure if his Continental Army would even make it through the end of 1776 and into the uh, start of 1777. Despite... um, General uh, William Henry Harrison's uh, successes at Tippecanoe and Prophetstown within the Indiana Territory in late 1811, around uh, November of 1811, I should say, did William Hull remain concerned about the Michigan Territory's uh, security status? Uh, Yes. Most notably, um, most notably, considering around February of 1812, he went. Uh, William Hull himself went to Washington D.C., and he met with a fellow named William Eustace, whom was the, uh, whom was the War Secretary under uh, President James Madison. William Hull uh, requested permission to recruit an army out of Ohio for the safety of the Michigan Territory. Well, remember, folks, in 1812, there's only one uh, state that is an official state out of that Northwest Territory, being Ohio, which was admitted to the Union uh, nine years earlier, back on March 1st of 1803. So, Ohio bordering Michigan, yes, the Michigan Territory, you know, yes, they could turn to their own uh, people, but even their own people alone might not be enough of a population that could uh, actually defend the territory, so therefore they have to rely on those, uh, those uh, able-bodied militiamen and regulars to the south in Ohio whom can uh, step up to the plate. While in Washington, uh, General William Hull, or I should say William Hull, requested that the U.S. government build a naval fleet for defending the Upper Great Lakes, most notably Lake Erie. Do you all think that uh, the government... Uh, supported uh, Hull's request or opposed it. I wished I could give you all better news here, but sadly, the government voted it down. And to me, I think this was a huge mistake. It's one thing to have an army, but you need to have a navy that can um, patrol the waters and not just so much patrol the war- patrol the waters, but be on the lookout for um, enemy... Um, advancements, not only just from one direction, but from the opposing direction. And, yes, it's one thing to have an army that can defend the mainland, but having an army and a navy together, both have, um, they both have a working relationship that could uh, benefit one another. Well, William Hole did walk away with, um, getting something, and that was that he was able to, um, Get the, um, he was able to uh, get approval to seek out 1,200 men from the Ohio militia to assist with defending the Michigan territory. So he did get uh, what we would call some kind of uh, compromise, but as for the naval fleet uh, defending the upper Great Lakes, most notably Lake Erie, that he was not able to get. On the other hand, though, he did get the post of brigadier general, including the commanding general of the Northwest Army. Whom was Ohio's governor at the same time? William Hull earned the head commanding uh, general army post. It would be none other than. Um, it's going to sound like this is going to sound a very interesting name, but I'm going to tell it to you all. The name was uh, Return Jonathan Meggs, Jr. And I'm sure many of you are probably wondering now, is this guy, you know, there is a fort called Fort Meggs. Is it named after this guy? Well, I'm not going to give it away just yet, but it is possible, is what I will tell you that much. Prior to becoming Ohio's governor in 1810, uh, Jonathan Meggs Jr. was appointed the state's first uh, chief justice to the state supreme court in 1803. He held other posts from commandant of U.S. troops in the Louisiana, terry, Louisiana Territory to judgeship posts in in the Louisiana and Michigan territories. So Jonathan Meggs Jr. folks has been around uh, quite a bit to where he has um, gotten lots of um, exposure to um, how government is to be run, uh, how uh, politics work, not only in the Northwest Territory, but also along what we know as the present-day Gulf Coast. And, of course, you know, we do have to be reminded that in 1812, Louisiana becomes an official state to the Union, making her the 18th state. We had a nine-year lull, and Louisiana now uh, has become the newest uh, state. Now, uh, what's unique about June 1st, 1812? Anybody want to take a shot? If you're not sure, I'll be more than happy to tell you. Well, it turns out that General William Hull's Northwest Army began its journey, leaving from Dayton, Ohio, going north to Detroit. Now, um, you know, when we think about um, journeying, say, north to south in today's time, you know, we've got interstates We've got alternate roads, if not going the interstate. Like, you know, when I think of alternate roads uh, versus, say, going Interstate 95, I think of US 301, US 1, uh, US 17, or US 15. I could I could go on and on. Now, when my wife and I were in um, Ohio uh, last week, we did get to have the opportunity to travel on uh, some roads that were um, non-interstate. Not that there's nothing wrong with driving on an interstate, but sometimes it's nice to drive on alternate roads uh to get away from the uh fast-paced hustle and bustle. So, we were driving on say US 23 which goes into Michigan and you know, we did drive into Michigan to get to Canada. We drove uh US through US 24, US 20, uh, U.S. 20, for example, folks, that starts in uh, upstate New York around the Finger Lakes region and goes all the way to Illinois. I didn't know that until uh, just a while back. So I think, you know, it's fair to say that whenever we do travel, we should always try to um, be re- be reminded of the fact that uh, we should always make sure to appreciate the um, alternate routes and not always be dependent upon uh, the interstates. But the reason I mention this, folks, is because, um, you know, 200-some years ago, folks, uh, there was no such thing as modern-day interstates. I mean, you pretty much had two ways to go. You had your roads for the time, and you had canals. So how is General uh, William Hull, or I should say, how is his Northwest Army going to get um, ultimately northward to Detroit, well, there is no Interstate 75 for going into Detroit, and there's no Interstate 96 either. And the only reason I know that is because of uh, my wife and I drove on those roads uh, last week. The only way they can get to um, Detroit, or I should say what would become Fort Detroit, it's the Great Black Swamp. I know that, that doesn't sound very appeasing, but believe me, folks, um, that really was the only way they could go. And uh, when my wife and I were in Ohio, uh, we did learn a lot about uh, the Great Black Swamp uh, via uh, having visited um, historic uh, Souter Village in uh, Archbold. So I'll tell you a little bit about the Great Black Swamp here. It's a large, it was a large tract of uninhabitable land located or or confined, I should say, within northwest Ohio. The Black Swamp was given uh, to the Indians under the 1795 Treaty of Greenville. You know, and that treaty um, basically uh, allowed the Indians to retain their land north of the Ohio River while um, the U.S. government was given land in uh, southern and eastern Ohio. Interesting enough about the Great Black Swamp is that it, is also a, it was also a glacially fed wetland which existed Believe it or not, folks, from the last known glacial period, being the Wisconsin glacial episode, 75,000 to 11,000 years ago, that was our uh, last known ice age. And um, not only was it a um, a glacially fed wetland that had existed during the last um, ice age, being the Wisconsin glacial episode, uh, the Great Black Swamp existed up through the late 19th century when it was ultimately converted over into farmland and I'll uh, tell you all some more about the Great Black Swamp at a much uh, later time. Uh, not um, that would have to, what I should say is in a much later time down the road per another uh, podcast segment episode to the series. General Hull in order for General Holt and his uh, forces to be able to um, navigate through the Great Black Swamp, they are going to have to require uh, getting permission, and that is from the Indian tribes living within the Great Black Swamp in general. So, in other words, they just can't go um, at their own leisurely pace. They can't go as if, you know, they they just can't come and go as they please. So they are going to have to get uh, permission from Indian tribes living in this area in order to go about crossing into Indian territory. The last thing the Indians don't want to deal have to deal with is a potential um, skirmish, a potential war. They've already dealt with enough uh, issues as it is with um, the government encroaching upon their territory. So June 8th of 1812 really uh, 10 days before Congress declares war on Britain, through tribal council meeting, permission was ultimately given for General Hull's forces to navigate building a road through the swamp to the Maumee Rapids, including construction of shelters, or rather I should say blockhouses, uh, small fortifications. So it's not so much that we're going to just try to get through this road, We have to establish some posts. We have to establish some fortifications because, folks, there is really no other way for General Hull's um, men to go to Detroit. So here's my next question to you all. Was the construction of blockhouses throughout the Black Swamp a vital element for General Hull's game plan? Well, for one, the British, from a naval standpoint... Are already in control of Lake Erie. Secondly, the only way into Detroit per supplies and personnel reinforcement lie to the south, the Black Swamp. So if you don't have any other way to go, then you have to do whatever is necessary to um, to build fortifications, that is to monitor any kind of enemy movement that might be coming southward. It's really the only way, uh, it's the only viable solution General Hull has from a north-to-south route perspective. The lifeline, or I should say the survival of Hull's army was 100% dependent upon the Black Swamp as fortifications were to be built from the swamp's southern edge all the way to the Maumee Rapids. Okay, but let me ask you all this. Do you think General Hull's army is another story to reckon with? In other words, it's one thing to go about needing to build fortifications. It's another thing to do whatever is necessary to try to be one step ahead of, of a potential enemy. But does it automatically mean that you have a unified group of men below you? Not necessarily. I wish I could think differently, but the more I'm learning about the War of 1812 and sometimes about, even from the American Revolutionary War, there were those who just did not like to adhere to any kind of conformity. Now, were the militiamen under General Hull difficult to control? (laughs) I hate to tell you this, but the answer is yes. For starters, They had little to no proper formal training, hence lacking any previous hardcore military experience. So, in other words, some of these men, yeah, they could have served in the American Revolutionary War, but times have changed uh, drastically over the last 30 years. You know, yes, military leaders come and go, but then you get these political ideologies that uh, come into place, well... I'm either for standing army or I'm against it, and if you have those against standing armies even in times of peace, then it just makes um, being unified all the more complicated. How about um, being? How about uh, militiamen being opposed um, to discipline of any kind, most notably from above via officers? In other words, it's one thing for an officer to try to discipline militiamen, but if militiamen aren't willing to adhere to uh the discipline or aren't willing to adhere to the rules imposed upon them, then how can there be any kind of um respect? How can there be any kind of um any kind of uh, proper um communications? They're just it it would be very hard for that to um Properly uh, coexist. So, you know, when I think of um, lack of discipline or being opposed to discipline, I think of a lot of times I think of the American Revolutionary War when militiamen came and went as they pleased. Uh, George Washington despised militiamen for a good period of time because he viewed them as the lowest ranks of an army. He viewed them as, not to be mean or anything, but he had, he probably had his reasons for this, folks. He, Washington, did not like militiamen simply because they it was all about themselves. It was an I-me-myself attitude, and that's kind of what we're seeing right here with the militiamen under General Hull's command as being difficult to control. So we could be in the early stages of, of what will ultimately become I-me-myself instead of us-we-ourselves. Many militia companies eventually became disgruntled And I think this is really sad, but it did happen. They became disgruntled over delays involving promised sums for enlistment. So, in other words, um, officers would have had to have found ways to have enticed um, young men to come enlist in the militia. Because, think about it, there is no... um, Formal recruiting station where young men would want to go in and say, Hey, I'd like to enlist in the army. No, oftentimes the recruiters or the officers were the ones that had to go out and and, uh, find able bodied men who were willing to enlist. And it wasn't just so much willing to enlist, but there had to be enticements. Okay, so here we go. Hey, uh, John Smith, if you will come join the militia, the Ohio militia, if you serve for anywhere from one to three years, we can give uh, you and your family 50 acres of land. That doesn't seem like a whole lot, but if that's the way, if that was what was needed to go about um, enticing um, one to en- to enlist in the Army, then that's what had to be done. But obviously, when these um, sums weren't um, issued, then yes, many militia companies or militiamen within the companies were disgruntled. It seems like all they're focused on at this moment is the money, or what we think of as the almighty dollar, when their focus really needs to be about service to their country. That's how George Washington saw it. General Hull's, um, well, General Hull was forced to rely on regulars, most notably the 4th Regiment of Infantry, which frequently uh, had to put down all disorder any kind of disorder from within the militia. So Hull's army arrived at the Maumee River and crossed its rapids on June 30th of 1812. Despite crossing the Maumee River's rapids on June 30th, uh, General Hull, what is he unaware of, folks? Do you think General William Hull has been been advised that uh, Congress has officially declared war on Britain? No, he does not have any, he has no, Um, indication that a declaration of war has already been issued. Folks, we don't have telephones, we don't have breaking news app alerts, so at some point we've got to figure out how in the world is General Hull gonna find out that war has already been declared. So basically he is still unaware that Congress had declared war on Britain nearly two weeks earlier, by the time his forces have crossed the Maumee River's rapids. Uh, When exactly did General Hull officially learn that war had been declared against Britain? July 2nd. He learned of the news through the mail. (laughs) Through the mail. Um, I wonder if, you know, obviously there's no FedEx or UPS. So let's find out how he learned about the news via mail. Uh, June 18th of 1812, the day day of war declaration, War Secretary William Eustace sent two letters to General Hull. One letter was sent by a special messenger that arrived on June 24th, but here's the problem. Nothing was mentioned about going to war. However, the second letter did mention um, that war had been declared. Interesting times in terms of communication to say the least but I'm not afraid to admit that even in today's advanced technological world that communication isn't always perfect either. A double-edged sword, to say the least. Why is, um, well, first off, um, do any of you know what a schooner ship is? It's a ship that has two or more uh, masts. One mast would be a small, smaller mast on the front side and the um. Larger mast usually is on the back side, so it's two or more uh, masts. But anyways, um, the reason I'm mentioning about a schooner ship, it's called the Cuyahoga Packet. Why is the Cuyahoga Packet important, folks? Well, the Cuyahoga Packet um, is important because it was filled, well, for one, the uh, schooner uh, Cuyahoga Packet was filled with injured and sick troops and medical supplies, All right, those seem like basic, well, medical supplies would seem like basic essentials. I mean, ships do transport those whom are injured and sick from one spot to another. But, to me, this was a mistake. If if anything that did not need to be placed aboard this packet ship, to me, the biggest mistake in terms of placing something aboard the packet ship had to do with official documents. General William Hull's personal papers were placed aboard this packet ship. This is a huge no-no, folks, and um, I will tell you why here in a moment, but I'll have to tell you more towards the end of the podcast. But nonetheless, General Hull's personal papers containing troop strength are on this ship, and to make matters worse, on July 2nd, 1812, which was the same day that uh, William Hull learned that war had been declared against Britain, he sent a messenger out to provide warning for the Cuyahoga Packet. However, it was too late, as the schooner ship got seized by a crew from the British brig, and, the British, and, a, and a brig is what we call a square-rigged ship, the British brig, known as the General Hunter, along the Detroit River via Fort Malden, Amherstburg. On July 6th of 1812, General Hull's forces entered Detroit. They, they made it, folks, just nearly one week after crossing the Maumee River's rapids. They entered Detroit, but little did they know if the schooner, uh, being the Cuyahoga Packet, had also made it safely. And it's like playing with fire. Yes, you made it over, but what about all but what about the ship? I mean, you know, it's yeah, if if I was an officer, I would have said, "Look, General Hull, we can place the medical supplies and the um injured and sick on there, but do not place your um personal papers because you don't know who could be lurking out there." You don't know who could seize our ship, and if the the personal papers are seized, there there goes our game plan. By the time General Hull and troop forces arrived to Detroit on July 6th, had the British already sealed off the main primary route via water. Uh, Some people back then referred to it as the Huron River. Others called it the Detroit River. But, is it fair to say, come July 6, that the British had already sealed off the main primary route via water? Yes. This meant that General Hull's entire supply line was incredibly imminent to enemy attack. Despite over 40 pieces of artillery with reasonable amounts of ammunition available in Detroit, not all artillery was mounted or located right in the city. Fort Detroit the town being the town's primary post, is in better shape. So, what does General Hull do? Well, he orders that Fort Detroit get restrengthened. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. General Hull goes before, uh, at the same, while well, Fort Detroit's getting re restrengthened, General Hull goes before Indians in the greater Detroit area, whom are still neutral, and he is persuading them to, remain neutral. He's also writing to Ohio Governor Jonathan Meggs regarding concerns for safety of supply line through Ohio. These are um, dire times. Yes, General Hull wants to prevail, but he also knows that he has got to do everything there is in his power to ensure that um, supply lines to the south are not going to be seized or what we might think of as, you know, being hijacked or uh, being uh, taken by the enemy via ambush. What was uh, William Hull's exact strategy for invading Canada? Well his primary strategy for invading Canada had to do with crossing the Detroit River into Sandwich, Ontario where his army would get um, established. His strategy sought to also sought to attack Fort Malden and it turns out that uh, my wife and I got to visit Fort Malden in, in Amherstburg, Ontario, last Thursday. Uh, that was very, very well worth uh, doing. Um, that was uh, part of the War of 1812. Uh, the village of Amherstburg is amazing. So if, for those of you who are wanting to visit uh, Amherstburg, Ontario, I strongly recommend doing it. You will not regret it for one minute, even if it's just for a day trip. So, uh, yes, General Hull's strategy sought to attack Fort Malden where American troop forces would seize essential provisions from the enemy. You know, when I think of essential provisions like, say, gunpowder, other, you know, essentials like, say, flour um, that could be uh, used for um, flour, salt, uh, anything that would uh, help uh, the army, his army, survive not just short-term but long-term. And as well as uh, rifles and muskets, anything that would um, help um, help an army out. Say, if you've got some soldiers whose muskets and rifles aren't working, but can seize um, other muskets and rifles from from an enemy's um, bastion or fort, all the more power. July twelfth, um, around July twelfth, uh, General Hull's invasion began his invasion of Canada, but I have to admit that his invasion never really got on proper course. Why is that, folks? I was really blown away at, um, the attitude behind the Ohio militia companies that were involved in, um, in this, um, invasion, or really what was of this invasion, because it never really, uh, it never really uh, took off um, as fully planned. And I was also reminded uh, when I uh, read, uh, when reading this book, how some things had never really changed even after 30-some years when, uh, leading up to when the American Revolutionary War began and ended, and now uh, the young United States Republic, having declared war for the first time, as the newly independent United States, you know, they, the anti-federalists do have this mentality that um, militias will always be capable of being able to put down um, larger standing armies, even if they come from overseas. Wishful thinking. And that was one of the hard lessons um, that President James Madison had to uh, learn, most notably after the British... Uh, burned um, Washington D.C. in August of 1814. Uh, if you get the chance to read through the perilous fight from the burning of Washington, um, the six weeks, the Star-Spangled Banner, and the six weeks that saved America—that uh, is a very, very uh, excellent book written by. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank here, but um, but nonetheless, uh, it's a very um, John uh, Vogel uh, John. Um, Steve Vogel is his name. There we go. Yep. Uh, Steve Vogel um, was the author of that book, and it was very well written. Uh, but I've, for those of you who were with me when about three years ago when I first began uh, podcasting, uh, we certainly uh, learned a great deal about how um, militiamen, about how militia forces could no longer be uh, relied upon um, defending um, in, in times of uh, warfare. But anyways, um, multiple Ohio militia companies refused to cross the Huron River into Canada on the grounds that their enlistment in the militia, listen to this, folks, prohibited them from serving on foreign ground territory. Well, you know, there are things that you have to do differently even in a time of war, and that means going over to the country north of you. North of the border, folks, Canada. But most militiamen, remember folks, are under that I-me-myself mentality. So despite, despite the opposition, the Ohio militiamen did go forward with the mission, but tensions remained uh, tense between regulars and militiamen. It seems like the regulars are having to play the role of babysitters to the militiamen. Uh, which Indian tribe... Whom had a large base at Brownstown, in between Detroit, and uh, Frenchtown. In uh, Frenchtown, uh, no, that the name of that um, place doesn't exist anymore. It's now uh, Monroe, Michigan, which borders on the line between Michigan and Ohio, just north of Toledo. But uh, which Indian tribe, whom had a large base at Brownstown, between between Detroit and Frenchtown, went about opposing General Hull's request for neutrality. How about the Wyandotte Indians? They went about siding directly with the British. The Wyandotte Indians at Brownstown were responsible for disrupting the American supply line as well as harassing Hull's army as they marched en route to Canada. So when I think of harassing the army, I'm thinking I'm thinking about irregular um not so much here irregular warfare, but um irregular tactics. Uh, you know they're fire. They could you know they could be firing shots at Hull's army. They um, militiamen could be falling out of place, and then uh, the Indians are falling back. But okay. But let's say two or three get wounded. That that can uh, have an impact. That means okay. If you've got three or five men wounded, uh, that means you're going to be shorthanded Some men whom could. Um, you know, make a difference uh, when an actual battle takes place. Ultimately, the Wyandotte Indians are trying to wear down General Hull's army. Governor Meggs, per previous response from General Hull, requested further assistance pressed all men available under the command of Captain Henry Brush of the Ohio Militia to go northward towards Detroit with the necessary shipment of supplies and cattle. You know, yes, you know, supplies is one thing, but cattle, well, you know, think about it, folks. I mean, I know it doesn't sound pleasant, but, you know, they would have to butcher some cattle. I mean, the cattle are going to be needing more than uh, just partaking, say, in the transporting of of goods, but uh, cattle are needed for uh, butchering uh, because you do have to feed an army. (laughs) I mean, there are no grocery stores. Captain Brush's militia forces departed uh, Chillicothe, and at that time, folks, Chillicothe is Ohio's capital in 1812, And for those of you who aren't sure where Chillicothe is located, it's located south of Columbus, which is the present-day capital of Ohio. Uh, Chillicothe is about 45 miles south of Columbus at most. So um, Captain Brush's militia forces departed Chillicothe on July 19th. Come August 2nd, folks, about about two weeks later, the supply wagon finally arrived at um, a blockhouse or a fortified post on the Maumee Rapids. And then it wasn't uh, until August 8th that the Ohio militia, with reinforcements, arrived to Frenchtown, Michigan, which is now present-day Monroe. So we should be reminded, folks, that um, we didn't have a whole lot of options to get uh, to and from um, where we needed to go, but we had to do we had to make do with what was available. By early august eighteen twelve, was General Hull coming to the realization that he would be encountering a massive enemy resistance via Indians and British troops. Yes, come august seventh, General Hull successfully withdrew, or I should say returned to the American side of the Detroit River after learning news of an un- unfortunate mishap involving Major Thomas Van Horn's 200-man force, which was caught off guard via the, the Shawnee Indian tribe ambush that resulted in half of those troops being killed. My gosh, it's one thing to have 15 or 20 men be wounded. Um, you know, it'd be one thing to have 15 men killed. Yes, that's that's uh, difficult and tough. But to have a hundred troops killed, you can't replace your forces just like that. You can't replace them like magic or overnight. To me, to lose half of your army in one day alone—that—that uh, that to me—that um, to me is beyond tough, beyond bad. General Hull, following. Um, the aftermath of Major Van Horn's uh, troop incident went about ordering another expedition into Canada. I don't know if this was the right thing to do, but I do have to give General Hull some credit here for at least trying. August 9th of 1812, 600 troops under the helm of Lieutenant Colonel James Miller marched 13 miles south of Sandwich to the Wyandotte village of Montguaggan, where they squared off against multiple Indians led by Tecumseh and four hundred British troops from Fort Malden. The good news, folks, is that the U.S. troops held their ground, due in part to infantry and cavalry um uh, picking up the slack and being able to um help um prevent um what we would think in our in our eyes as um greater um prevention of greater um. Loss in terms of uh, numbers, however, there were heavy losses under uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Miller. So, nonetheless, uh, because of these heavy uh, losses, this forced Lieutenant Colonel Miller back to De- back to Detroit. So it's one thing to have embarked on this mission, and yes, you may have prevailed in the skirmish. I'm not sure how many troops he lost, but if, but if, say, he lost half of his 600-man force, to me, that is, um, you know, it's one thing to gain a victory, but at what price? At what price does it come at? Well, now we've got to figure out, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about the American side. Now we need to focus on the British. We need, to focus, we need to find out whom is leading, whom's, whom is going to uh, step out as the guru or the leader uh, for the British Army um, around Amherstburg, uh, Fort Malden, and, you know, really in a sense uh, for Fort Detroit. Whom is, who, is going to lead the way for the British? Well, let's find out. Um, let's find that out. Who is Isaac Brock? I'm sure some of you know who Isaac Brock is um I've learned I've known about him for some time well I do know this much about him he is he was a British Army officer whom was in his early forties by the time the United States declared war on England by that would mean folks that if Isaac Brock was in his early forties by the time the u s declared war on England he would have been born right about the time um he would have been born just just before or right around the time when, say, the infamous Boston Massacre took place. But by the time war was declared, Isaac Brock had attained the rank of Major General, as well as holding the post of British Governor for Upper Canada. August 6th of 1812, Major General Brock, with a handful of regulars and volunteers from the York Militia, including Indians, roughly 5,000 strong, set out for Fort Malden. At the same time, General Hull learned of the American forces under Commander Porter Hanks, having surrendered Fort Mackinac on Lake Huron to the British from July 17th. So July 17th, folks, and you know there's 31 days in July, so July 17th and the 31st, that's two weeks, That's almost three weeks, folks. There's a three-week gap from the time um, Commander Porter Hanks on the American side surrendered Fort Mackinac uh, to the British on Lake Huron. Three weeks, folks. Now General Hull, he's really now stuck between a rock and a hard place. And when uh, Commander Porter Hanks surrendered Fort Mackinac to the British. That was that was the first uh, stepping stone that gave the Indians all the more um, all the more reason to um, come to the side of the British. And for those of you who are wondering where um, Fort Mackinac is, it's um, it is a historic site. Uh, but Mackinac uh, is located right along. It's on the northernmost edge of uh, the mainland of Michigan, well, well north of Detroit, uh, well north of Grand Rapids, uh, Flint, um, but it um, Mackinac uh, basically separates um, the northernmost end of uh, Michigan's mainland in the state, uh, and just to the north is uh, the Upper Peninsula. So. There is the Mackinac Bridge, which separates uh, the mainland from the UP, or Upper Peninsula. So, uh, so, in case any of you are wondering where Fort Mackinac is, it's right along that area that separates the mainland from the UP. Major General Brock's forces officially reached uh, Fort Malden in Amherstburg August 13th, a week later. Now, at this, at the time that uh, General Major General Brock's forces made it into uh, Fort Malden and Amherstburg, uh, August thirteenth, he meets a, an Indian warrior named Tecumseh for the first time. Tecumseh still hanging in there despite having, um, despite having been defeated at Tippecanoe and Prophetstown in, in the Indiana Territory, um, but Major General uh, Brock. Uh, being uh, the British officer, he, how do I say this? Remember, folks, that um, when uh, General Hull's uh, forces, General Hull and his forces arrived into uh, Detroit, they um, they entered uh, Detroit on July 6th of 1812, but they weren't sure if the uh, schooner, uh, being the uh, Cuyahoga Packet, had made it. <laughs> which contained all of his uh, personal papers. Well, it just so happens, folks, that Major General Brock was was the British officer whom got access to all of General Hull's personal letters or dispatches via the Cuyahoga packet. Well, (laughs) Major General Brock read over all of Hull's letters And after having read over all of of, uh, Hull's letters, Brock determined that General Hull, the American commander, was very timid and currently showed signs of um, friction within his army. This led Major General Brock to go on the offensive by attacking Fort Detroit. Whereas General Hull had 2,500 soldiers under him, it's always easy to assume that, well, if the party, if the military force that has the most men will always prevail. History has always been able to prove that that has never been the true um, case. Many of times, an army has had less men and yet ended up prevailing. Major General Brock had just shy of 2,000 under his watch. August 15, 1812, Brock's forces reached the American shore where they went about surrounding Fort Detroit to demanding General Hull's surrender. Multiple tactics were deployed, such as Tecumseh's forces crossing in front of the fort several times only to move backwards, only to move back. And they were doing this primarily as a means of intimidating Hull. In other words, yeah, we're gonna come up here, up oh, we're gonna back off, up oh, we're gonna come back up front. In other words, we're gonna keep harassing you and we're going to keep um intimidating you to the point where you may just want to give up altogether not even have um, the courage or the determination to get your men um, into a um into a possible um skirmish or let alone a battle well these tactics really did pay off especially for um Major General Brock, and most notably with um, Tecumseh's forces, crossing in front of, of uh, Fort Detroit several times via intimidation, large Indian um, via large Indian numbers, uh, come August sixteenth. The inevitable happens. General William Hull surrendered Fort Detroit, without any fight. In other words, he didn't put up a fight, folks. The surrender of Fort Detroit had a profound negative impact on American morale. As for Major General Isaac Brock and Tecumseh, they are now fully united. Tecumseh now sees firsthand that Major General Isaac Brock took matters into his own hands, and rather than waiting upon um, orders from a superior from a superior officer, Major General Isaac Brock decided to take the initiative after having read Hull's letters and decide that now was the time to strike a dagger in Hull's heart. Now, um, the Michigan Territory folks, with uh, the fall of uh, Fort Mackinac from the month earlier, now to um, Fort Detroit, all of the Michigan Territory folks is now in the hands of the British, And the Indians. This is not a good way for for the young United States, who is 36 years old, to start a war, knowing that when they declared war on Britain, there was no full 100% support. It was all on party lines. Now we have to wonder, where is the fight going to go next? Is it going to go into Ohio, to the south, or is it going to go just southwest over into the Indiana Territory? Well, I can tell you this much when I'm on the air again next. We are going to talk a little bit more about um, activity in what is now uh, present-day Fort Wayne, Indiana. We will also learn more about uh, General William Henry Harrison and how he responds to what has occurred in uh, Michigan in the Michigan Territory, I should say. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all. And wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. And thank you again for being such ardent supporters. Take care for now.